0: Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, MK Sirwick, also known as Comic Nurse. I'm located here in Chicago with Ian Williams, also known as the Bad Doctor in the UK. I co-run graphicmedicine.org, a website that explores the intersection of comics and medicine. On today's show, the first of our new season, an interview with Jennifer Hayden, creator of the recently released graphic memoir from Top Shelf, The Story of My Tits. Also, we'll discuss Graphic Medicine news and a new segment I'm calling, What Are You Reading? But before we begin the show, I want to share some exciting news. The Graphic Medicine podcast now has a sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from the Penn State College of Medicine Department of Humanities, the nation's oldest humanities department within a medical school, pioneers of innovations in medical education since 1967. To learn more about Penn State College of Medicine, Department of Humanities, go to www 2medpsuedu humanities. Then I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode. In our first segment, Graphic Medicine News, uh, the big news in graphic medicine is that the date of the 2016 Annual Graphic Medicine Conference has been announced. It will take place in Dundee, Scotland on June 29th to July 1st. Uh, so, mark your calendars so you can come meet everyone working at the intersection of comics and medicine. Uh, in other graphic medicine news, the Annals of Internal Medicine graphic medicine f- uh, segment featured a comic called Sign Out by Ryan Montoya. Be sure to check that out. Um, it's at Annals of Internal Medicine, and they have a special graphic medicine section now. Make sure you check out everything there, it's very exciting. Um, Paula Knight, who is the creator of the forthcoming. Um, graphic memoir, The Facts of Life, which should be expected out in 2017 from Myriad, she flagged up an article um, in the Bookseller, um, an online book news uh, uh, site, um, that says, Market for Medical Graphic Novels Grows, and it features uh, the work of Rachel Ball. um, The Inflatable Woman is her graphic memoir that's going to be coming out from Bloomsbury uh, this month. Uh, October, Um, and it mentions also Henny Beaumont's work, Hole in the Heart, Um, so check that article out. It's very exciting to see uh, the bookseller, which is a general book news website covering uh, the growth of graphic um, novels in healthcare, uh, graphic memoirs, Um, so that's news. And if you want to keep up, the best way really to keep up with all the news in graphic medicine is to like our Facebook page, um, people share things to us there, uh, we share as we see articles on the fly, Ian and I share pieces there, um, and that's where things really, uh, mostly it's kind of the latest news, um, and, uh, that's the place to check it out. So, Graphic Medicine News, check out our Facebook page if you haven't liked us there already. It's the best place to stay in touch. And now on to our main segment. I had the opportunity to speak with Jennifer Hayden the other day. She's been making comics, uh, for quite some time, and she is the author of the new graphic memoir from Top Shelf called The Story of My Tits. Um, from the Top Shelf website, here's a description of this new graphic memoir. Um, when Jennifer Hayden was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 43, she realized that her tits told a story. Across a lifetime, they'd held so many meanings hope and fear, pride and embarrassment, life and death, and then they were gone. Now their story has become a way of understanding her story, a journey from the innocence of youth to the chaos of adulthood through her mother's mastectomy, her father's mistress, her husband's music, and the endlessly evolving definition of family. As cancer strikes three different lives, some relationships crumble while others emerge even stronger, and this sarcastic child of the 70s finally finds a goddess she can believe in. Um, Jennifer Hayden came to comics from fiction writing and children's book illustration, her previous book was called Underwire, and it was excerpted in the Best American Comics in 2013. So, without any further uh, delay, my interview with Jennifer Hayden. Well, I have to tell you, I just finished your book, the um, the review copy that the publisher sent me, and I just am head over heels in love. It's wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. And I'm very excited. Well,
1: I mean, I was just, I was doing a talk yesterday, um, and I was uh, telling people that, you know, the book was in, in, I didn't expect it to be, but in the end it became a way of getting closure on our leaving that property because
0: it was in the book. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, One of the things I really love about it is that, you know, in, in graphic medicine, which is, you know, the sort of about the intersection of comics and medicine. One of the things we talk about a lot is, um, is that, you know, this is such a great medium for, Understanding the Full-Lived Experience of uh, Illness, and I feel like your book does that so beautifully. You start with, you know, the story not just of the house, but of all that prece- all the people who are part of you and the stories, and um, it's just wonderful because you completely understand the context of your, um, you know, the context that you're creating for us, of your experience, of your your, it's just wonderful. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Well, I, I um, have tried to explain several times that when I set out to do a book about breast cancer, I realized, first of all, I found out it wasn't so original, after all, because Cancer Vixen had been done by Marissa Marchetto, and, you know, um, Brian Fries had done um, uh, um, his book uh, Mom's Cancer, and then, you know, Picard had done Our Cancer Year, so it, this had been done, And uh, but beyond that, I realized that I didn't want to just you know, tell a a sort of historical story, this is what happened to me when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I I wanted to make it a survivor story. I wanted cancer to be one chapter of the story, the rest of it to be, you know, a person's life. It's as a person. It's not a cancer victim. It's a person. But beyond that, I also wanted to give the reader the same feeling I had had the day I was diagnosed, which was that all of these ripples were were fanning out around this, you know, big stone being thrown in the pond of, you've got this diagnosis. And I wanted them to, to have that same experience when we get to that part of the book and to have them already know what must be going through my mind because of all these other things that have happened that are related to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you've done, you've done that uh, just beautifully, beautifully in this book. Thank you. So when does it come out officially?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's out now in some ways. You can get it at Barnes & Noble, near me anyway. You can get it. Uh, Amazon has delivered copies to my friends who ordered it on Amazon. And I know Top Shelf is shipping it. Okay. And um, comic stores supposedly had it. They No, I know they had it on the 16th of September, okay. early. So it's, it really should be out there. But a few people... I don't know the, all the different ways that people ordered it. I know I have got friends who are still waiting for copies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've still, I pre-ordered it on Amazon and I still haven't gotten it. Fortunately, my wife was able oh. to print out what your publisher sent. So I was able to read that, but yeah, I still haven't gotten it. So, so it's all right. So it's out huh. there and tell me, are you planning events? Do you have a calendar of events around it that we could promote in any way?
1: yeah i do i've worked my way through about half of them and as i as i look at the end of the line i'm thinking wait a minute i don't want this ever to end (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) i'll just go on tour for life with this but um yeah i've got uh new york comic con coming up this week so i'll be signing on friday and uh on saturday um in the afternoon uh and then, uh, I'll be on a panel, um, 6.45 on Saturday evening at New York Comic Con. Truthiness is Stranger Than Fiction, something like that. And then the next weekend is, uh, Massachusetts Indie Comics Expo in Cambridge, in Boston. So I'll be going, uh, up there and I'll be on, I'll have a table and I'll be selling them on Saturday and Sunday and then I'll also be on a panel there. And after that I've got, um, I'll be at Comic Arts Brooklyn, which is a great show in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, in New York, uh, on the 7th and 8th of November, and I'll be doing a panel there. And then um, the next one, Miami Book Fair, which is the weekend before Thanksgiving, and I'll be going down to Miami for that. And then I've got an event with um, on the old home turf in Brooklyn at Book Court on Thursday, December 3rd, which I'll be doing with my mentor, um, Dean Haspiel, who kind of brought me into the comics fold many years ago. And uh, that'll be fun. It'll be a reading with him and some of uh, some of the guys from Hang Dice uh, Editions, which is his imprint that he's doing.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah, I saw the reference to him in the credits. That's really wonderful. Um, and I love the way that you incorporated also kind of how you came into the comics fold into the text. Uh, you, you sort of you know, showed yourself reading your first graphic novels, and, uh, and that was really neat to see.
1: Yeah, I kind of had to do that. I I, um, I realized it was sort of meta and weird to actually be describing the beginning of the book that people are holding in their hands, you know, because then it starts to step out of – it's like having someone talk into the camera almost of a movie and kind of ruins that illusion. Um, but I thought it was germane because, you know, a great thing – that happened as a result of my breast cancer was that I discovered graphic novels while I was recuperating and I read so many of them because I was, you know, rela- you know, recovering from surgery and I I discovered that they were the best way for me to tell stories, the best way for me to tell this story and you know, I really had this experience of losing my breast and gaining my voice as an artist. You know, it just came pouring out once I discovered graphic novels and that was just such a an incredible, joyful result that I really had to include
0: in. That's wonderful. I love the way you put that. Tell me more about why you think comics were um, what really gave you that voice. What, what is it that you think about the medium?
1: Well, I mean, I have a, a panel in the book, and, you know, I can't find it right now, but where I basically uh, show myself realizing that every emotion – that I wanted to convey, and that I never successfully conveyed when I was trying to write in my twenties and thirties, um, could be. It could be. It could all be piled into the same panel. It. It. Uh, the. The medium is so flexible, so immediate, so accessible, uh, so rich and dense, and um, and most of all, informal. As informal as you want it to be. Which is how I am. I want to be able to just say, you know, shit, whatever I want to say. Um, you could bleep that out. Um, I want to be able to. I don't. I don't want to be hampered in any way. Yeah. And having grown up reading a lot of novels and studying art history and studying literature to death, um, I appreciated how it was how it was put together. And uh, and I always had a very informal approach to studying. You know, if I did a report on Chaucer. I mean, Chaucer was my drinking buddy. He was hysterical. I loved him. I loved his stories. Um, the same with Shakespeare, same with Charles Dickens, but, uh, I, I I didn't want to be, um, hampered in any way by somehow I, I didn't want to be in such a traditional mode and to have that, those forms hanging over me. And once I was doing graphic novels, once I saw that, um, how casual that could be. I saw that it it could hold everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I love the ways in which you incorporate sort of, you know, as you mentioned, this classic literature that you'd studied into the comic form and definitely into the themes that you carry through. And, uh, yeah, you did just a magnificent job with that. Thank you. And, oh, go ahead. uh, It
1: it is central to my, you know, thinking. I mean, there's an awful lot of, stuff i learned in, in you know reading literature in school and thinking about it that stuck with me and stayed at my core you know i mean my feeling was always if you didn't if it didn't touch you personally then what was the point what did you learn i never thought that learning should be you know an exterior thing where you're impressing a teacher or getting a grade whatever mm-hmm. to me it was like this is personal man mm-hmm. um so that's why these things are in the book and i made an attempt to explain them as carefully as possible so that it would they would not seem distancing for other people looking at them for the first time
0: right like the thomas wyatt poem mm-hmm. right right most of which i had lost by the time i was
1: trying to write it down and my niece who is wonderful um looked it up on the web for me she doesn't even rem- remember this but she she was in college i think at the time and she'd gone to my high school so i knew they'd probably studied that poem and i said i cannot find this what is it you know um i've got to look at it again i've got to you know analyze it once more just to make sure i I, it says what i think it says and she got the poem to me and and it was great It it was terrific
0: yeah because you really um you work with that imagery and that power of that you know don't touch me um and the way that things are present to us yet elusive to us. You work that through throughout the book, really just beautifully.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because, uh, I felt this way about my mother and me, don't touch me, you know, that she's untouchable when she was, uh, diagnosed with breast cancer. And I, and I felt similarly myself when it happened to me. I mean, I, uh, I, felt just removed from the world. I, I described it, I guess, with my kids as, as, a glass door being between us. Um, but I did feel as though suddenly there was a,
0: there was glass between me and the rest of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Um, and tell me about, uh, tell, tell me about the goddess. I, I love the way you, um, you use that, um, I just I love the way that you know at the very beginning you know you read that um, you know I dedicate this book to I put this book at the feet of the goddess and and you sort of think okay hopefully I'll understand that by the end of the book and you do such a beautiful job of uh, bringing that up and and uh, and carrying it through uh, and and we understand where that came from for you um, the goddess pendant that you know we see you wearing in the in the first introduction page Um, tell, tell me tell me about that
1: thank you so much um, yeah, and it, it, you know, my first book, Underwire, which came out in two thousand and eleven, had portraits of goddesses, including that one, in it, which people probably just leafed over and said, "Well, whatever, man, I don't know what that's <laughs> about." And because even back then, you know, I had started this book already, and and I was dedicating everything to the goddess because the goddess was, um, I mean, the best way for me to to explain it is that she was a metaphor and an image that uh that supported me when i was recovering and uh and it helped me to believe in her and so i just kept on dedicating everything i did to her and following any promptings that she gave me and she's never steered me wrong so it's not exactly a religion i was never a religious person but um you know what happened and i described it in the book is i um had been given a a meditation tape by a shrink i was seeing for you know some some sort of words of comfort as i went through this diagnosis and process and the tape told me to think of something larger than i was to put my trust in and uh for some odd reason what popped into my head was a bead well a, a pendant that i had just picked up at a bead store and it was a tiny version in Pewter of, of, of uh, the um, the fertility goddess that is less commonly known than the Venus of Willendorf, but she's similar. Willendorf is Paleolithic, this one is Neolithic, she was discovered at a settlement, you know, um, in Romania, and uh, and it's just breasts and a big belly and, you know, the vulva and no legs and no, uh, no arms and no head. And... Uh, I just saw this thing, but I saw it as a giant, much huger than I was. And she seemed it just, just this moment daydream that I I had while I was listening to this tape, she seemed to say, You know, uh, you must go through this and it's gonna be painful, but it, it's gonna be all right. It's it's gonna be fine. And I'll help you and just rest your head on me on my bosom. And I sort of spiritually kind of rested my head on her And I have really ever since. It's a very odd thing. The moment I snapped out of this, I just thought, well, you could dismiss that as just your imagination and say, all right, fine, that was a very pretty idea, but you know, I, I don't believe in big, big, big things like that. And then I thought, or you could go the other way and you could just be comforted for a long time, for as long as it lasts, and keep thinking of that image when you need help. And I have continued to uh, You know, I wear her around my neck, you know, that was sort of a promise I gave her and I dedicate all the work I do to her. And, you know, I, I, it doesn't really go beyond that, except there are times when I, you know, I'm doing yoga in the mornings and I and I thank her for stuff that's happening. And and that's that's kind of it. It's it sounds sort of sappy slash religious. Uh, it's really more philosophical and, and just personal.
0: Yeah, and I love the way you you couch it too as a choice. Like I can choose to take comfort that's being offered to me, or I can just dismiss it intellectually. Right? I, I love that idea of the choice. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know, faith, of course, is a choice. Friends of mine who are are um, religious have have you know posed that to me and said, you know, this you need to take that leap of faith, and if you choose to, then you know you, you may like it. Um, so I suppose I was doing what a lot of people have done, but what I liked was that I had waited for it to come to me and I had waited for it to come in a form that worked for me because this is all about womanhood and who I am as a woman and, you know, a mother figure that I can be closer to in many ways than I was to my own mother.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really wonderful. I like the idea too of it coming to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's very wonderful. Um, so I'm going to be a comics nerd here on you, um, as someone who's trying to finish up a, a graphic memoir myself, um, I'd love to hear about oh, the, God. yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear about the process because you say at the end that you, um, and this isn't any kind of spoiler, but that you, um, you had to get a dip pen when you were Pitagaff, gave you tendinitis two years before it was finished. So I want to hear about that process stuff. So, uh, anything you want to tell me about the process of, this was an eight year process
1: yeah, it was long. Uh, uh, okay, so I, I, the first drawings in the book are the first comics I ever drew, first comic panels I ever drew, and they're unchanged. Um, but, I mean, that's my publisher top shelf just being the fantastic people that they are. Um, basically, I just told myself, I said, read the best graphic novels you can find for a year. Give yourself a year from surgery, and then you're going to start this book. And when I realized I had to start, I just stole somebody's style. I just stole a format, you know, um, because I I was so confused by all the different ways that you could make the boxes. So I had been reading a lot of of Linda Barry, and I just took her boxes. And I told her recently at SPX, I ran into her, and I said, Linda, I have to apologize. I stole What You Do Your Boxes. For a book I was working on, otherwise I could never have gotten going with it. And she <laughs> cackled with laughter, threw her arms around me—total stranger, right? Gives me this big hug and says, "Oh my God, nobody owns this stuff. There's no such thing as you know intellectual property. You can have that. I don't care. Fantastic."
0: Oh, that's and that's I, so that's so wonderful. I have to interject as a Linda Berry um, absolute aficionado that uh, I just love that. That's so her, right? That's just wonderful. It is. And it's the yeah, same it so... it's, it's the same response she had when I, I told her, you know, I hope you don't mind I'm using some of your exercises with medical students. And she said the same thing. This doesn't belong to me. What do I lose if you use it? Nothing. That's wonderful. She just wants it to go out into the universe and to make it a better place. And I just agree 600% with her.
1: So I just got started, and I started making the boxes, and my only – the only method to my madness was to tell myself to add. It was sort of like an add-a-pearl necklace, except I hate to compare my <laughs> my panels to pearls. But the idea is uh, just add one each day and don't worry about anything else. And I had a timeline that I put together with my husband's help. He has a better memory because that was covering a lot of years, and I just wanted to make sure I saw where things actually did line up. Otherwise, I knew I'd get myself into trouble remembering things wrong. Once I had the timeline, then I kind of saw where I could cut chapters and they would be more dramatic. And then I wrote the chapter outline just so briefly, two sentences per chapter. I didn't want to guide this book too much. I had this feeling that I was getting kind of a transmission and that it was just sort of coming into my fingers. And I, and I as long as I gave myself the space and the time to hear it and to feel it that, it, that I knew exactly what to do, even though I had never done this before. So um, I did not write a script. I did not do pencils. I didn't do thumbnails. Uh, I just um, went from panel to panel. Because when I inked something, then I'd I'd add a detail that I hadn't thought of, and that would spark you know, maybe the next panel. And I handed this thing in to Top Shelf and in Ink. Can you imagine? They must be the only guys in the world who would put up with that. And all they did was give me, uh, give me, um, typo, you know, edits. Basically, I, I hardly had to redraw a thing. It was just incredible. But um, I did, in fact, from the, the, using this uh, very um, dense style with a lot of crosshatching and texture, get tendonitis two years before I was done, and I was in terrible pain, and I had to stop drawing for a couple of weeks. And start icing my hand and I learned all about hand yoga and Chinese hand balls and squeezy balls and soaking your hand for 20 minutes in hot water before you work and after you work and blah 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 and it all helped and it all basically enabled me to recover there's one page in the book that I drew with a dip pen and I kind of it's kind of a game I leave it to people to figure out And. Um, they should be able to figure it out. Luckily, the message of that page was absence and sadness. And so not making it detailed worked. So, you know, again, Top Shelf never said, hey, you got to redo this page. It doesn't look like the others. Um, and, uh, and then as I got back into the book, I just started to learn a few lessons about having a, a plain panel with a couple of more complicated panels on either side, the reader doesn't mind having a break. I think I was terribly nervous about seducing the reader into reading my work because I was a beginner. And now I'm evolving a style that's, um, you know, on the surface, it's it's like this one. My drawing is still the same, but I'm, I'm actually doing the shading and the texturing with uh, a black watercolor pencil, which I wet for a little painterliness because you know, this is just insanity what I was doing, and I'll never be able to do anything more with my hands if I keep it up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can see that in all the marks, you know, just looking at the backgrounds of all the panels, the, the, yeah, you can see the handwork, that's just amazing. It
1: was, you know, I mean, Alison Becknell says when she was doing, um, Fun Home, I I read something about how she realized quickly there was no way she could do it like ducks to watch out for with the crosshatching and stuff. She, if she wanted to finish it in time, she had to um, use uh, a, a coloring. She, she she picked a pale green, and she just figured out where she wanted to put it in Photoshop. And it was it's a such a beautiful. Um, co- She's very sensitive about how she does it, so it doesn't look like a photoshopped book. And her line work is still really delicate and beautiful. Yeah. But she was smart. She saved herself. She saw from the beginning what was going to be going on. I just jumped into this book like a like a crazy puppy. I had no concept. <laughs> and nobody told me, you're crazy. They, they let me go, which was spiritually the thing to do, but physically a disaster.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, for you,
0: right, as the artist, yeah.
1: And, I mean, that's because I was 43 when I started it. And when I handed it in, I was... 50, something like that. I'm 54 now, so let's, I can't do this. So if I started it when I was 40, no, I, 43 was when I had the cancer. Started it a year later, 44. So if it took me eight years, I was done when I was um, uh, 52, something like that. And so also that was right when my eyesight failed and I started to get, you know, a little bit of uh, arthritis in my thumb joint. So, I mean, you know, it's just a bad timing. Thank God I didn't leave it any longer.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like you, you just kept going because you wanted to make sure you did it. It was just absolutely beautiful. So, just to clarify, so you're telling me, like, chapter one is the first comics you ever made? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's craziness. They're fantastic. Well,
1: it's, I, but it's it's so simple. It's so... Basic and and you know what that's part of why this book is um, it goes from I was it's good that I went started in childhood because childhood is something that we later don't remember as clearly and per, and for the perceptions to be simpler makes sense so I can see myself sort of lowering myself into the water in the first like five chapters I'm gradually getting a sense of what I'm able to do. And then when I get to the chapter about my mother's breast cancer, I remember heaving this apprehensive sigh and thinking, oh, my God, am I going to be able to do this? You know, am I up to this? And but every challenge I gave myself, I kept, you know, I wanted to, to, to rise to it. And that's what taught me how to do comics.
0: Yeah. Well, and the answer to that question of whether you were up to it is clearly uh, yes. <laughs> and, and that's what. <laughs> and that kept showing itself to you that's just amazing it's just wonderful um uh i had another question and i seem to have lost it i'm just overwhelmed looking at at this book um so, uh, so I'm just curious then, from a process side. So, when you finished your manuscript, did you show it around to people, like your family, um, or uh, in terms of like getting feedback from them? Or, and was everybody good with it? Everyone's like, I completely sign off on what you've done. You know, as far as how they were represented themselves.
1: Oh man, definitely not. No, I mean, I did this book very much in private, and it's funny because early on, I was doing. Uh, I took a detour to do these underwire stories that went into my first book You know, when Dean Hasfield invited me on Activate. And so those were public. I was doing those in front of the public on the web. But I never put this one on the web. I didn't want anyone looking at it except a couple of people. Dean looked at it and a couple of publishers looked at it. And once Top Shelf took it, I didn't even show it to them. I just said, okay, now... I have an advance, I have a publisher, now this is just me in the wilderness. I didn't show it to family, I didn't show it to friends, I didn't show it to any comics people. I just, again, I'm, I'm stubborn here. I knew that I knew what I was doing and I knew that I was uh, a person who'd been in school for a long time and who had always been very easily manipulated and uh, influenced as an artist and I thought, I'm not doing this this time. I am not listening to anybody. I'm going to be as as uh, tasteful and artful and um, sensitive as I can be. And when it's done, uh, I'll trust my publisher and maybe a couple of readers to tell me if they think I went astray anywhere. But when I handed it in, Top Shelf, uh, I I said, "Please tell me, tell me if you think I've been too harsh on my family in this book." And and they said, "I we don't see anything out of line." And, you know, they had seen things out of line in my Underwire stuff, a couple of things they pulled out. So I, I did trust them, and uh, and I actually didn't end up showing it to anyone in my family before it went to print, partly because we kind of hurried it into print. Um, it, there was some scheduling things about getting uh, getting some ARCs out at, at BEA, the land of alphabet soup, um, some advanced copies out at Book Expo in, in the Javits Center, which you know, where all the books get introduced in the spring, and to do that, um, I I had to you know get right on it and make the the few changes we needed to make and the cover and stuff. So I didn't end up involving, say, you know, my little brother or Dean or anybody else in the editing process. But I, I pretty much thought if they came up with different things for my publisher, would I would I do anything about it or would I just go with what my publisher said and 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 have it be finished so this summer i brought one of those advanced copies uh up to my mom's place in the cape where we all end up sort of reunioning during the summer and um and and different people read it and different people didn't read it and some people said something about it and other people didn't and i was just kind of watching you know and the this copy got (laughs) sandier and sandier and wetter it was in and out of beach bags and it was starting to get mildewy and i think it just ended up you know under a couch somewhere i don't i don't think anybody knows where it is now and that to me just represented my family's handling which was perfectly appropriate of this thing that's not really them it's it's they're in it but they're seen through the prism of my memory which is faulty and uh and they They accept me into the family as an artist, accept that the stories are going to come from them. And they know that art is art, you know, it's not truth, it's not reality. And they are letting me have my space. I've decided that's pretty much, that's, I think, the the general response.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. It's like everyone just sort of lived with it, as you say, uh, this physical imagery of it getting... Mossier and and uh, more sand filled. It just feels like they lived with it. They spent time with it and they lived with it. And and so no one said anything to you. No one said, "I don't like how I look." In chapter four, no. I mean, I think if they didn't like it, they just
1: um, they didn't want to get into it. Mm-hmm. And you know, we don't all see eye to eye. It's a big family. We're close in terms of being around each other a lot, but. We're all pretty different people, but we all let each other be pretty different people. You know, it's like social um, dysfunction. And um, and I think, and, and I did get, um, you know, a couple of uh, people were very enthusiastic about it, so that was good. And my mother, in just a general way, was proud of me. I haven't, my father hasn't seen it yet, and that's going to be much more difficult because, you know, I love him and I really love his second wife who comes off as a terrible character in the book. Only in the beginning, though.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, on balance, absolutely, only in the beginning. Like, clearly, what you you say about functional dysfunction is very true to all of the characters clearly come through a level of acceptance. And, yeah, as you say, only in the beginning. I'm sorry to interrupt you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. So, I mean, uh, I think think there may be some... uh, I you know, I haven't heard anything from some of the people in the family who I expected to say things, but that's they need their space just as much as I need my space. And we're all older, man. We're in our fifties and my parents poor things they're in their late eighties. So I mean, bygones have been bygones for a long time. This book should have come out thirty years ago. Yeah. Then we could have had a nice knock, knockdown, drag out fight about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> now we're now we just we're too old. We don't care and we're too weak to fight. It's like yay she finally did something with her life
0: (laughs) (laughs) but also in a way you feel that you know you feel that passage of time in this book and you feel just and this sounds dirty to say but this river of life flowing and in the end all will be okay right like you just feel that in this book
1: oh that's nice because that is how i felt writing it and part of why i wanted to just do it organically as organically as possible both visually and in terms of the structure i just wanted to keep letting it gush out of me because that seemed that seemed the best way for this to flow and for me to give that sense to other people of that this is how life happens that was always my desire as an artist was just to be as accurate as i could about the movement and the feeling of life
0: nice 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 so, um, just in terms of kind of wrapping up, uh, do you, would you have, so I'm really moved and inspired by you saying that these are the first comics you made because you really felt like you found your voice and you found your, I guess in a way, your medium for communicating. Any advice for people who find themselves in that place, who might maybe have not found the goddess yet, to tell them that it would be okay if they want some guidance, people picking up their their pens for the first time uh wanting to use this medium any advice for them
1: well i mean what i always used to say was um uh, i mean I, i not everybody wants to write autobiography if you do then start at the scariest start with the scariest stuff you can imagine like if you're too scared to do something creatively then you've hit the right nerve but on the other hand I know that I worked on this material when I was writing, which I wasn't very good at, when I was in my 20s and 30s, and the way it came out of me, it never came out in the right voice. And I do think part of that was because I hadn't had enough perspective on the experience. So sometimes the thing that blocks you from doing something that you know is a good project, a good idea, is that not enough time has passed. And um, I remember years ago some uh, writer saying, the thing you need to find out about autobiography is how you stand toward this material. I loved that. That stayed with me because um, I thought it was only when, you know, whatever things came together, I'd been through breast cancer. I'd, I'd had the life scared out of me. I'd had the idea, you know, placed in front of me of never having my life recorded or never doing what I had in me to do. And so whatever it was, allowed me to view my past in uh, finally a way that allowed the stories to flow and to be more or less balanced and fair enough to create uh, a work of art that I consider to be um, symmetrical, to to, to work uh, as a work of art. So, um, but if you're starting out doing that, um, uh, I guess it's to give yourself enough Space and silence, and not let other people interfere with you. If you have a tendency to be overly influenced by that, I think you really need to be alone with the material. And too many people think they need to go to a class. They need to read, you know, Scott McCloud's whatever. I mean, I just stayed away from anything that was trying to tell me what to do. And I uh, read the best material that I could get my hands on, that I that was what I wanted to do. I looked for role models in the books themselves, and when I found them, I just savored what I thought the person was doing so well. And if if the book had been recommended by someone, you know, Jimmy Corrigan, you got to read it. It's supposed to be great. I'm reading it, and I'm reading it, and I finished it, and I just got the tiniest amount of soul from that book. And I said, I see that there's skill here, that there's a puzzle here, but it is not... For me, this is not going to be teaching me how to do this. Teaching how me how I need to do this. So, I guess I would say be selfish about your learning. Go and learn what you need to learn, and don't um, worry about what anybody else thinks you need to learn. And and then just uh, you know don't be afraid if it's crude and uh, and if you're not supposedly ready, just just begin. And make yourself
0: happy on the page. I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. I think that really, really is is absolutely true. And and your book bears witness to the fact that that's absolutely true. <laughs> Thank you. That's Thank wonderful. You. That's really great to hear. Because um, I think that's right. I think you know if someone looks to something like Billy Corgan, which is something totally different, and speaks to someone else. And if they look at that as what they're supposed to be making, they're going to be beating their head against a wall, right? That, as you say, yeah, and
1: I, I know this is true because I, I did this to myself when I was trying to be a writer. I destroyed writing for myself in my twenties because I tried to do it. I mean, I got to say, I tried to do it like a white man, you know. Yeah. I just, I was looking at John Cheever and Updike and uh, John McPhee and Hemingway and. Um, I mean all of these all of these guys and i mean i was looking at women too but but mostly i I had come from a very very academic approach to literature and fiction and and nothing experimental and um and very little that was truly autobiographical and and anyway and i read all sorts of things about the origin of the english language and you know all this crap and i I destroyed it. I just just absolutely, literally destroyed my own ability to write by making my editorial functions so top-heavy. Mm. And when I, when I arrived at comics, I remember getting there and going, okay. It was like falling in love after destroying a marriage. It was like, I'm not going to do this again. Oh. oh, no. This time I'm going to do it with, you know, absolute faith in myself. I'm going to follow my instincts. I'm going to follow my taste. I'm going to assume I'm ready. I know what I'm doing. And God knows I've read enough and lived enough to do this thing. So let's just roll up our sleeves and get going and stop screwing around. And that was the best thing for me. That was what I needed.
0: Right, right. Just trusting, as you say, your life and your experience and your taste and your ability. And that's very inspiring. And I think a lot of people need to hear that. It's very exciting to hear you say that.
1: Well, a lot of women, too. I mean, I, I know that the strong women out there, uh, I don't think of myself as one of them. I'm stronger now than I was, but I, I think that women so often believe, oh, you're not ready yet. Mm. You know, you need to go study more. You need to do this. You need to do that. You know what? You don't. <laughs> <laughs> you think the guys are saying that to themselves? I always get so annoyed by this. The guys are like, woohoo, I can do this, whatever. I learned how to do it yesterday. Right, right. <laughs> Look at me, I'm hand gliding. And the women are like, I'm going to go get a PhD in hand gliding. You, know, mean, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's absurd. Look at the stuff that we can do. Uh, this baby just came out of me. I think I'll raise it, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, it's true. And it's I'm, re- I'm terrible. I'm, no, go ahead. It's just, it's a terrible occupational hazard. I
1: mean, I think I even read it in Moore magazine, which is like completely embarrassing. I never would have read this magazine. It was, you know, Lonnie somewhere. I picked it up and I, in the interview, this woman said, um, you know, the secret of success is to realize that you don't need any more preparation. You already know what you're doing. Yeah. And and I just read that and thought,
0: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. Absolutely. Oh, that's Yeah, that's really wonderful. And then the other thing that's really interesting is that I've just been reading Mary Carr's new mem- uh, book about writing memoir called The Art of Memoir. Um, I've heard of that. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's really wonderful. And the, I have to recommend the audiobook because she reads it, and it's so it's always great to hear the oh, author. Nice. You know, Yeah. But she says exactly what you said about starting with your scariest scene, and she says mm, exactly yeah. what you said about you know, making sure you, if you can't get through that, then maybe wait a while till you have that perspective to be able to look at your story from some distance. Um, So it's interesting, you know, that she echoes exactly that sentiment.
1: You know, something that occurs to me, um, when I was trying to write some of these stories, like living with my husband, living with his family, which I knew was like good material, uh, and I wanted to write about it in my 20s and 30s. But I remember... When I would sit down, maybe this is a writing issue, but maybe it was a thinking issue. It seemed to me that there were always five thousand ways to write about it. And I would do one draft and then I'd do another draft and I'd do another draft, all different voices, all different ways, sometimes slapstick, sometimes funny, sometimes third person, sometimes first person. Oh, maybe I'll do it as a play. Maybe I'll, you know. And and when I started to do it as a comic, there was only one way that this mm. could be done. Mm. There was one sound that I heard, one voice that I heard, one way that I wanted to do it was like a recipe of it. There's going to be this much funny and this much sad and this much tragic, and you're going to mix it up and put it in the oven, and that's how it's going to go. And so maybe, too, if you hear too many ways of doing something, too many voices, it isn't ready yet. Mm. Mm. It's possible. I don't know. I'm not a writing teacher, but that's or maybe you know you need to be doing comics or something
0: yeah 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 no because or 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 find that exact medium where you only hear that one voice you only see that one way right because there's a clarity there like you said you found your voice you found the medium for you
1: i think maybe that is a good prompting because and and even if it's a terrifying voice and the, the subject matter is terrifying that it's ready to tell if you're single-minded about it Mm. that probably is is where you need to go i too much i see people and i'm always surprised to see in comics because comics to me seem so crystal clear much more so than writing but this happens to writers of course too um you can get uh you will try endlessly to trick yourself out of doing what you are sitting down to do Mm. your brain can be set to dick and can jump around saying, saying, oh, that's, yep, you, know, you know what? You screwed that up. You didn't write that out, right? Oh, that was too many words. They won't fit in the panel. Now you have to start over. Um, you know, it's like it's dancing around you all the time, po- poking fun at you while you're trying to get to work. And it is so hard to keep at it and until finally that stuff just goes to sleep like dogs around you. and just goes to sleep and lets you work. And I tell you, I started to to learn to laugh at that part of my brain because I would see it coming down the pike. You know, if I was tired or insecure, I'd work for a few days or I wasn't sure about this new character. And I would see it come up and start tormenting me. And I would just say, I, I'd be like, I don't believe you are still at it. I'm on page 320. <laughs> Can you just cut it out already? <laughs> but on and on it goes. And you really will a certain amount of your mental energy combating that and just get it to shut up.
0: Yeah, just try to get those dogs to go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's really fantastic imagery. You, you you really have a way of creating wonderful imagery, obviously, because this book is really tremendous. Um, thank you again for uh, spending some time talking to me today. Thank you so much,
1: M.K. for calling me up and asking terrific questions. And for spending so much time reading my book, I have to thank everybody who devotes enough time to actually read my book from start to finish. It's, a, it's an
2: investment.
0: <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. In fact, it just it, it goes so fast that, you know, and people always say this about reading great graphic novels that you feel like you want to go back and like you're trying to get through to read the content, but then you want to go back and really appreciate, you know, every line you put into that sweater, especially somebody who makes this stuff to know how much time every panel takes and how clearly how hard you you worked at it. It's really just a a beauty to behold. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. It really means a lot to have so many people, you know, relate to it.
0: And now for our new final segment for this season of the Graphic Medicine Podcast, a segment I'm calling, What Are You Reading? In which we get the recommendation of a graphic medicine text or two, or graphic medicine related text or two from someone connected to the Graphic Medicine website. This week's first guest is Michael Green. He's a doctor, ethicist, researcher, and educator at Penn State College of Medicine and a co-author of the Graphic Medicine Manifesto. Michael, what are you reading?
2: Well, thanks, MK. It's great to be able to uh, think about this and and talk with you as always. Um, uh, Lately, I've been reading a couple of things, um, which uh, a couple are old and and some are new. and uh, <clears throat> so I'll just I'll just share with you what I've been reading lately, which I which I think are worthy of recommendation. The first um, is an oldie, uh, reasonably old, by ali Brosh, Hyperbole and a Half. I've been hearing about it for years and seeing seeing it online, but it's now out um, as a uh, in a book form, and it's uh, a hilarious uh, memoir um, about. Uh, Lots of stuff, mostly about her life, uh, and there's a couple of chapters in this that deal with um, uh, depression, which I found uh, interesting in part because it's so funny. You don't usually think uh, of depression as being something that's funny, uh, but yet she manages to accurately depict what it's like, I I assume, you know, to have a severe depression, and she's able to poke fun at herself and uh to um take a step back and uh describe what what was like for her and uh and it's all done with these crazy simplistic but hilarious drawings of her as some sort of fish-like character I mean, it's not not clear what it is but they're they're beautifully drawn uh incredibly expressive uh even though simplistic and i uh, I just find it uh, really funny and worth, uh, worth the read. Um, so that's one. Uh, another um, oldie that I have been reading uh, is Wrinkles uh, by Paco Roca, which is a Spanish um, author. Uh, so this is a translation into English of uh, the Spanish story about um, uh, becoming old. Um, and uh, developing some dementia. And so it's the experience of this uh, older gentleman who goes into a um, assisted living type environment and uh, some of the challenges of being in that environment. It's sort of uh, wonderful to see a story told about that experience um, from the point of view of somebody who's actually older rather than you know a young person thinking about what it's like to be old. Uh, and it gives a really nice, uh, and realistic accounting of, um, uh, of, you know, loss and, um, reduction of opportunities and, uh, the experience of, um, uh, developing some dementia and it's, it's, it's really, really good. Um, and I highly recommend this one. Uh, can I keep going? Sure. Keep going. All right. So, so the, so those are a couple of the olders. A couple of new things that um, people may not be so familiar with, which uh, I've been reading. Um, this one uh, is called "The Pillbox" by David Hughes. Um, uh, it's uh, he's a UK graphic illustrator, uh, and um, uh, it's I, I don't know that this would fall into the graphic medicine uh, category because it's not so medical, uh, but it's uh, really interesting. Uh, Super creepy. Uh, The the drawings are amazing. Um, I mean, this guy's artwork is just uh, really interesting. But it's it's sort of this kind of horror fantasy story about um, uh, some kid who finds a uh, World War II remnant pillbox uh, where I imagine soldiers were hiding, you know, on the beach. Uh, and some horrible things happened there. A kid was killed there in the 1940s. Uh, Some strange stuff happens, and uh, it goes back and forth between present tense and uh, past tense and uh, tells multiple stories about what happened on this beach, and uh, it's really um, uh, creepy, frankly, (laughs) but... um, so I can't say I enjoyed it, but I was intrigued by it. I couldn't put it down, and the drawings just sort of immersed and, and blew me away because uh, uh, he's got a very distinctive uh, style, which I um, find um, really intriguing.
0: So perhaps it's a good read for the Halloween season.
2: Yes, it's a Halloween read. Uh, I read, uh, I don't know this guy at all, but I did read his blog, and uh uh, and he's he's a very well known graphic illustrator in the u k but he was um, lamenting on his blog site about uh, how sales aren't going great <laughs> uh, which um i don't understand given that it, i mean it's really uh impressive piece of work um, but yeah uh, and then the final oh, so the, the final thing um has not it's a shout out to uh Bill Doan, who is a colleague uh, at Penn State who is in the Department of Theater. He is a playwright and a um, writer, and it turns out a talented comic artist. Uh, And um, he's working on uh, a a memoir, a graphic novel, his first, about uh, an experience... um, of his uh, sister, who developed, uh, tr- who tragically suffered a traumatic brain injury, uh, and um, I've been seeing he's posting on Facebook some individual panels from this, and I've been talking with him about it for a while, and uh, it's just incredible. I mean, the story that's unfolding is an amazing one. He actually is a is a quite a well known playwright, and he wrote a he wrote a play called Drifting about this experience of his sister having this traumatic brain injury and ultimately withdrawing life support and dying. And it's a, it's a, it's a really moving, uh, thought-provoking play. And so um, uh, this graphic novel that he's working on is um, uh, of the same general topic. I'm not exactly sure how it's gonna play out in terms of a graphic novel, but I've seen his drawings, they're fantastic. Uh, he's a really good storyteller and I'm just looking forward to seeing uh, uh, what that turns into. Um, and so keep your eyes and ears open to Bill Doan. He's uh, an up-and-coming graphic uh, medicine superstar, but uh, he doesn't know it yet.
0: Nice, nice. And does he have a title for the book he's working on?
2: I don't I don't even know.
0: Ah, cool, cool. Well, that's great. Well, you know, it reminds me that Paul Gravette always says, whenever you think about the books, or he said at our conference uh, a couple of times, I think, that Every time he finishes the summary of all the books that came out, and he always he said, uh, "You know, if you listen closely, you can hear about ten more being, or about a hundred thousand more being made right as we speak."
2: <laughs> well, Paul Gravett knows it all.
0: That's right. That's right. All right. Well, that sounds like a great place to end this section. So, thank you very much for being our first uh, guest on "What Are You Reading."
2: Oh, well, thank you. It's fun. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to the Graphic Medicine Podcast. I'm M.K. Sowick, co-curator of the website graphicmedicine.org. New episodes of the Graphic Medicine Podcast will be posted weekly on Fridays. Don't forget to subscribe in iTunes, and while you're there, it'd be great if you left us a review. Um, if you'd like to be a guest on What Are You Reading, please be in touch. I can be reached at comicnurse at mac.com. If you would like to come up with a new theme song, because the one I'm using is really annoying, please do, and be in touch at at Um In our next episode, Brian Feese's introductory talk from the 2015 Graphic Medicine Conference in Riverside, California. Support for this podcast comes from the Penn State College of Medicine, Department of Humanities, the nation's oldest humanities department within a medical school. Pioneers of Innovations in Medical Education Since 1967. To learn more about Penn State College of Medicine, Department of Humanities, go to www slash humanities. And I'll put a link in the show notes for the episode. Until next time, have a great week.